Welcome to the fourth episode in the Goodwill Hunters Winter Series on Water for Development. I'm your host, Michael Wilson, CEO of the Australian Water Partnership. In this series, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, the CEO of WaterAid Australia, Rosie Ween. I am joining from the lands of the Ngunnawal people in Canberra and Rosie from Coolan Nations land in Melbourne. We extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their care of our lands and waters. We extend that respect to all of our First Nation listeners. In this episode, we'll be exploring what happens when climate change, conflict and water scarcity collide. And to help us pull apart those increasingly intertwined global existential threats, we are so lucky to be joined by two people who've trod the world stage, seeking policy and political consensus more than most. As Australia's 29th Prime Minister and as Opposition Leader, Malcolm Turnbull had an especially strong understanding of the climate threat, as you'll hear. And as Minister for the Environment and Water, he walked a political tightrope, getting the federal, state and territory governments to work more cooperatively on sharing our water resources. In this episode, he generously shares his experiences, insights and the lessons we can take from that time. Howard Bamsey was Australia's lead international climate negotiator for more than a decade and then went on to serve as CEO of the Global Green Growth Institute, Executive Director of the Green Climate Fund, and is now Chair of the Global Water Partnership. You'll hear him make an argument for a powerful narrative to pull people into the issue of water scarcity and sustainable water resource management, helping to pull people away from narrow self-interest so there at least is willingness to contemplate change. We hope you enjoy the episode. Water scarcity and water security challenges are growing at an unprecedented pace, affecting billions of people globally. The United Nations has said that in over 300 locations, we can expect to see conflict over water by 2025. This is exacerbated by continuing population growth and the impacts of climate change. So what happens if we do nothing? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from the Australian Water Partnership. As a Water for Development initiative supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Australian Water Partnership mobilises Australia's internationally recognised expertise to drive action towards sustainable water management in our region and beyond. We're so glad you can join us for this crucial conversation on our shared global water future this winter on Goodwill Hunters. Malcolm Turnbull, Howard Bamsey, welcome to the podcast. Malcolm, as Prime Minister, you were one of 11 world leaders on the high-level panel on water, which aimed to make prioritised and practical recommendations to governments and leaders on how they could address water management challenges and achieve the SDG targets by 2030. So now that you're out of politics, what advice do you tend to give to current leaders about how to address the political barriers to achieving sustainable water resource management and universal access to water and sanitation, especially as these are preconditions for further poverty reduction and future economic prosperity? Well, 
you know, you, you, you have to start off on uh, a sound scientific foundation. Um, so, you know, you, you, that, that's the, you've, got, you've got to start dealing from a foundation of fact. Uh, and then you've got to work out what your objective is, which is going to be a equitable allocation of water resources, both as between human use and the demands of the natural environment, and then, of course, as between uh, demands of, uh, you know, you know, from as between industry, cities, farmers, you know, different types of farmers, communities, so forth. So, look, it's not, you know, I mean, there's there's as much art as there is science in the business of water, and uh, it's a, it is a, you know, we can talk a little bit about the experience of the Murray Darling Basin in that regard, but you 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 can't be, you cannot ignore the human side of it the human nature side of it um you know in my experience uh everybody typically anyone on a river will regard the diversions of those upstream with enormous resentment and the claims of those downstream with chilly indifference uh and that really just says that humans are pretty self-interested and uh so that's you know that's that, that's that's what you've got to do. But it's, again, it's it's easy you know it's easy to describe at a policy level and a theoretical level. But managing the politics of it is is uh, is often complicated, and it requires a lot of skill to uh, to do that and a lot of patience. Thanks, Malcolm, and we're really looking forward to to um, exploring some of those experiences and that art and science as you describe it. So, Howard, um, with, you know, reflecting on your career, which began as a diplomat and then you've had 20 years developing and negotiating climate change policy for successive Australian governments and also international agency, you've now decided to switch your focus to water and you chair the Global Water Partnership. We'd love to hear a bit more about your journey and, and why the recent change of tact to water. Um, well, thanks, Rosie. I, I don't think it's so much of a change. I think in many ways water is the front line of, of, the, of climate change. It's the first, very often, as it was in Australia, the first casualty of climate change, and it's the vector that moves climate impacts through the economy to agriculture and public health, for example. So it's very much a, a, a climate question, and when... The UN a uh, couple of years ago reviewed progress or, or obstacles to progress to achieving SDG 6, the water development goal, uh, uh, they found that climate and population were the two big threats. So uh, I think it's very much uh, a climate issue. And secondly, I, I'm, I was very attracted by the way GWP works. I've become recently, um, I guess, very concerned that the global development paradigm was not, was not working as it said it was. So it wasn't resulting in increasing capacity uh, in any 
reasonable proportion to the effort made uh, in developing countries. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I admire the way in which GWP uh, works bottom-up to help communities and countries just make more sustainable water decisions. Malcolm talked about the perceptions that people at any one point in a river system have of those upstream and downstream and and as he then went on to to imply it's it's really a, a, another way of putting that is that all decisions about water are really political and the way gwp works recognizes that and and tries to uh, bring substantively all of the context to the decision making so all of the social economic um, and and uh, technical questions in context and also uh, insists on engaging everyone who has a stake in the outcome of the decision. And sometimes that works very well. Sometimes, of course, it doesn't. It runs into all sorts of uh, problems. But uh, I think in general, it's a very good way of ensuring that eventually communities, countries have the capacity really to make their own decisions and not be told by international agencies or their bilateral partners that this is the way for you. Absolutely. So for you, the climate crisis really is a water crisis um, and look forward to, to hearing more about the importance of, of capacity and decision-making in our conversation. Um, Malcolm, if you know, listening and, and hearing you both around this, the colliding of the climate and water crisis. And if we look to our region and the Pacific in particular, where there's been a strong focus on climate change for the future prosperity of the region, um, their survival uh, uh, at the core, but also the achievement of the SDGs, they do also face extremely serious water security challenges as well. In your view, why do you think water security hasn't had as much of a focus as climate change? And how do you think our region is seeking support and raising their voices uh, with the international community? Uh, look, water scarcity is a global issue but its manifestation is invariably local, okay? So the, um, you know, you can say uh, that a tonne of CO2, I mean, Howard and I have said this a thousand times between us, probably many times, uh, CO2 emitted in, you know, Sydney has the same impact on the climate in Shanghai as a ton of CO2 emitted in Beijing, you know, right? Because it's a, you know, global global heating, global warming is a global phenomenon. Um, so water scarcity is a global issue and water and, you know, water availability and water cleanliness and so forth, but it is also affected by local factors. I mean, you know, uh, climate uh, a hotter, drier climate does mean in areas, in most areas, that you're going to have less water, less rainfall, and in particular, less runoff. I mean, that's, you know, and in a big, flat, dry place like Australia, that's particularly relevant. Um, the But you also have more demands on uh, water. I mean, in the 2000, uh, you know, the drought that sort of was happening in when we, uh, enacted the the Water Act, Commonwealth Water Act in 2007, 
you know, there were people who were saying, oh, well, you know, this isn't as bad as the Federation drought of, you know, roughly 100 years before. Now, that that was a questionable proposition just from a hydrological point of view. But the, the reality, of course, was that there were many, many more people wanting to use that water. So, yes, the, 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 so you get greater human demands, population growth, uh, you know, the, the need to, you know, develop more irrigated agriculture, the arrival of, um, you know, submersible pumps, electric submersible pumps that enable, uh, you know, wells to get deeper and therefore, you know, groundwater to be depleted more rapidly. All of these things, um, you know, come into play as well. So the, you know, the, the fundamental, the water is a water is something that the problem with water is that is that we take it for granted until it's not there. I mean, it's the you know I think it was was it Frank Ben Franklin that said we will not, uh, you know, uh, we we will not know the value of water until the well is dry or something like that. But it's the it is it's essentially that that is essentially the. Um, uh, the problem there's a there's often a complacency of it and and also when you get intractable difficult uh, political problems often people will just shy off them so the only reason we could get the Murray Darling Basin plant well you know what was initially the National Plan for Water Security that was enacted you know when John Howard was PM and I was the Water Minister um, the only reason we could do that was because we had this terrible drought, you know, and we I mean, we thought Adelaide was going to run out of water. We really did. We thought the Murray was going to run dry. Uh, and it has, it, it, you know, pre-regulation days, it certainly used to run dry. Um, the Or, you know, big patches of it did. Uh, and it certainly stopped reaching the sea. Uh, we thought Brisbane was going to run out of water. Wyvernhoe Dam, you know, which only a few years later flooded the, the, the city, uh, Wyvernhoe Dam was, I think, down to about 15%. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the that crisis was what prompted the reforms. Or, or sorry, not it what prompted, but in particular enabled the reforms. And yet, so then when it rains, people say, oh, heavens, yes, okay, let's just, you know, let's move on to something less painful. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And the, until, of course, you get the next drought. And <clears throat> this is the, you know, this is the this is the problem. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like global warming. You know, when you get a cold, you get a cold snap and, you know, people say, oh, you know, remember Donald Trump would tweet, you know, whenever there was a bit of snow around, he'd say, oh, it's cold today. I wish we had a bit of global warming. And, you know, it, it, literally <clears throat> that's the, that is the, the, therein lies the problems. It's a, it's hard to maintain the, um, you know, the the persistence with it, and you get, um, you, you know, you have now got, I think, <clears throat> in the Western democracies, including Australia and the US, you have got now very, very extensive media, both mainstream and social resources devoted to anti-science propaganda, conspiracy theories, you know, just making shit up bluntly. And that, you know, that has a big impact on the, um, you know, that has a big impact on the debate as well. And just ignorance. I mean, you know, 
people people that will literally say with respect to the Murray River, and you know, um, oh, you know, all that water that's being wasted going into the ocean. <laughs> you say, okay, so what are we going to do? Put a cork in the end, okay? How's that going to look? You know, it is, it is, it it, you know, I mean, one of the problems about water is that people, so many people do not understand the fundamentals about it. And, I mean, if I could just sort of, you know, let me just make a couple of points because, I mean, this is the key thing. The most important thing to understand about water, apart from the fact that it's absolutely, you know, not necessary for life, is that a 1,000 litres is a cubic metre in volume and one tonne in weight. And a 1,000 litres in most cities, you know, you can get delivered beautifully clean and pure into your bathtub for, you know, a couple of dollars for a 1,000 litres. In some cities it's less than that, in some cities it's a bit more. A farmer can only afford to pay a few cents. Now, what that tells you is that water has a very low value both to volume and to weight. And this is a critical insight. It's a penetrating glimpse of the obvious, but it's generally overlooked because of what it means is that long-distance water schemes, of which grandiose politicians are often fond of, are very, very rarely economic because, you know, of the because of that problem that it you know, it costs a lot to store water and it costs a hell of a lot to move it around unless, you know, it's uh, gravity is doing all the work. So, you know, that's why uh, water is a global problem, but it has uh, local solutions. And so if we fix our water problems in Australia, that is not going to, well, put, put so if China were to fix its water problems, let's say it was could snap their fingers and flip, uh, fix them, that would not solve India's water problems or Australia's. Whereas if China were to immediately go to net zero in terms of emissions, <clears throat> that would not solve our global warming problems, but, boy, it would have a huge global impact. And so that's, that, that is, that's a cri another critical insight. So those are my two penetrating glimpses of the obvious, for which I apologise. <laughs> No, they're fabulous messages, including for um, for a lot of the countries uh, across the world dealing with both these water scarcity issues and competition over water management, but also lack of resources. Um, so to you, Howard, you talked earlier about the need to think up new ways of effectively building capacity uh, to properly manage water in developing countries and improve information available to decision makers and the quality of decisions. So from what you've learned working at the global level on tackling climate change, what do you think people working on this lesser known water crisis need to be focused on and why? Well, I, I think, again, following from what Malcolm said about the, the obvious circumstances of, uh, of dealing with the water crisis, a global crisis that manifested locally. One of the problems we have is that there is no global home for water in the way there is for, for climate, for example, or biodiversity or, or chemicals or 
So water is a highly fragmented global issue, both because it has to be in one way, but also because uh, we've allowed it to be. And uh, I think one of the consequences of the of, of what's happened with climate is that it's it's become more salient to many governments, most governments, and essentially it's crowded out the water crisis. Twenty years ago, uh, water was you know much higher up the, uh, the the list of priorities for most governments than it is now, and I, I think there are all sorts of explanations, but but key ones are frankly, just fashion that, um, you know, that, that's become, uh, there, there, are these, there are these changes in, in uh, uh, global um, sense of, of priority. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you ask me, given my background, I guess I would say that finance is sort of the key issue uh, and it's, it has suffered as a result of being of, of water being crowded out uh, from the priority list, but but there are all sorts of ways in which, if we were in the water world more aware of uh, of uh, the uh, increasing availability of support for climate action, we could be much more effective in dealing with with the water crisis. Yeah, and I think. I'd like to build there as well, um, Malcolm, at building on Howard's point, but also your reflections on your time as Minister for the Environment and Water and your passion for quality data. And if I remember correctly, your role on the high-level water, um, high-level panel for water, you really championed uh, data there. Building on your experience with water management on the Murray-Darling Basin, which um, Unfortunately, those disputes seem to be on the rise again. What other lessons and reflections do you think Australia has to offer internationally, both around that powerful use of data for decision-making, but also how to equitably share transboundary water resources? What else can we share internationally, do you think? Well, well, look, yeah, I think, I mean, I think Australia has managed its water much better than many other countries. I mean, I think there's no question about that. And, you know, if you go back into the 19th century, I mean, Alfred Deakin, who was a great water uh, reformer and, you know, really uh, went over to the United States and saw the disaster that was developing there with water rights and resolved to take a different approach in Australia. So the fact that... Um, you know, you don't have a sort of first-in, best-dressed approach to water entitlements is very important. Um, the fact that water, that, you know, other than, um, you know, a landowner's rights to extract water for stock and domestic purposes, the your, you know, any substantial diversions have to be licensed, uh, that's, you know, critically important. Of course, we had the problem, particularly in New South Wales, and also in Queensland, but especially in New South Wales, of just massive, reckless overallocation, um, you know, and there were big opportunities missed. You know, there was a time back in the 1990s when the sleepers and dozers, by which I mean, you know, licences that were either not being used at all 
or were being rarely used should have been cancelled. In fact, you know, there was that came, there was that was very nearly done in New South Wales in Griner's government that the Nationals, according to Ian Causley anyway, who I think was the water minister at the time, told me that once, that uh, there are, you know, there have been quite a few missed opportunities, but I think generally we've done it better. The fundamental problem that you have was uh, was an over-allocation of water to agriculture for the most part. The Murray River um, is a very long, flat stream. Uh, it, I think from the Hume Dam down to the Murray Mouth, it's the elevate, drop in elevation is about 175 metres, is my recollection, and over 2,500 kilometres of river. So it's as flat as a tank. So the natural ecology is a floodplain ecology in the sense that when it rains, the water just spreads out, and when it doesn't, it you know trickles along. Uh, in and in dry times, it just becomes a series of pools. So we changed all that and diverted water for our own floodplains, i.e., irrigated agriculture, and then we dammed the water up at the head so that we kind of turned it, you know, turned the water flow upside down. So you know we've done a lot of things to change the nature of that river. Now, what the object really was to recover water for the environment. And the the big message that we had, the big vision that I, you know, the vision sounds crazy, right? But the big idea that I had as the, you know, the water minister and having put together this plan with others in the year before, in 2006, was this, that we said what we are going to do is invest in infrastructure so that you, the irrigator, can make as much food and fibre as you were before, but by using less water. So less water will go to waste, whether it is through evaporation or through seepage into often saline groundwater systems, you know, and and. Look, I recognise there are qualifications on all of this. Uh, you know, one person's, um, you know, one person's uh, unfortunate seepage is the next person's uh, vital groundwater resource. I get all that, um, but that was the big idea. Now, what and and the money we allocated for buying water back was designed to be used strategically, so that, in other words, you would. You know, you'd do a plan with an irrigation area, you'd, you know, subsoil dripper tape, line channels, pipes here, whatever, whatever, do all that, save a whole bunch of water, but there would be some people, areas perhaps on the perimeter of the scheme, the, the soil was no good, the distance was too long, and it was easier to buy them out. Okay, that was the idea. Now, what happened was the Labor Party got in at the end of 2007 and they didn't, I mean, this is not a partisan comment. I'm being utterly objective here. They genuinely did not understand it. Kevin didn't understand it, with great respect to him, and Penny Wong absolutely didn't understand it. And you had some really uh, uh, bad influences coming from Treasury, particularly Ken Henry, who were opposed, who wanted to acquire water back at the lowest possible cost. And so naturally, being economic rationalists who know the price of everything and the value of nothing, uh, they went into the market and they bought water back willy-nilly. 
And so you had, it was like, it started to look like a Swiss cheese. And the problem with that, the problem with unmanaged water buybacks is that you'll get a district where the water will be bought, the farmers who sold it will be happy because they've got their money and they've retired to Barwon Heads or somewhere similar, and but the rest of the town is shot. You know, what happens to the, every other industry in the town that depends on it? So, you know, the so the idea that you use the water buyback money for strategic buybacks and structural adjustment had been lost. And that was where the National Plan for Water Security or the Murray-Darling Basin Plan lost its public support. They, they betrayed the trust of the irrigators that we had very carefully built up in getting the Water Act passed. I mean, the Water Act was supported by the irrigators in 2007. And so, but but there was a lot of trust me in it. And sadly, uh, that, that trust was betrayed. Now, you know, it it's taken, you know, it still hasn't been rebuilt, but it's it is it was a it was a big it was a really big failure. And I I did my best to explain this to Penny at the time, who I, I admire. And uh Tony Burke succeeded Penny as the Labor Water Minister and tried to recover ground. Uh and he had the support of a gentleman called Craig Knowles, who'd been a water minister in New South Wales, was helpful. But Honestly, the it was a that was the mistake. So 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 the problem was the politics of it, and you know you can't get around the politics because the the you know the 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 water will perform in accordance with certain characteristics. You know, mostly gravity. Water goes runs downhill. You know, <laughs> it's uh, you know um, uh, it is there's there's all sorts of things you can predict human beings are complicated and they're cross-grained and they're self-interested and you know you've got to you've got to have you've got to sell a vision there and you cannot um you know take the water out of a town and 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 enrich the farmers which is fine they're happy uh and leave everybody else uh you know stranded so you've got to have a plan you know, I remember once I was giving a speech in Mildura uh, to some irrigators and, uh, and uh, you know, it was quite a difficult meeting. And in the midst of that or on the, might have been the morning after or the morning before, but Ken Henry had given a speech somewhere which he, he was really opposed to what we were doing uh, because he said the megalitres that, you know, Turnbull is, acquiring through infrastructure are more expensive than megalitres you can buy on the market. I mean, yeah, I, thank you so much for that incredibly brilliant insight, Dr Henry. It was really helpful to me. And, and you know, and he had people, you know, like journalists and others supporting that. But, of course, what that overlooked was that you're dealing with human beings, you know, you're dealing with people and and you've got to have a plan that works hydrologically and politically. Unless you get the politics right, you cannot get the hydrological outcome you want. Yeah. So, so that that indeed is um, why Australia's water experience um, is attended to with such close um, 
interest by a lot of developing country governments because for them it is useful to see that even in a country like Australia we face these great political struggles and and helps to demonstrate that most water problems are actually 90% political problems. Um, And Howard, you know know this as well as anyone, but as an international development challenge, um, uh, once the needs have been prioritised, which the Sustainable Development Goals generally and SDG 6 have helped us to do, the next problem, as you've already mentioned, is financing. Uh, so what strategies could we pursue internationally to leverage more financial support to the achievement of SDG 6, which is still lagging seriously behind most of the other sustainable development goals? And um, do you think there's a significant role here for private financing? Oh, very important questions, Michael. Um, I'll try to deal with them um, as succinctly as I can. The, first, the private finance um, and I put that in a sort of similar category to um, philanthropy because the way we look at the private sector too often, I think, is, well, you know, there are these companies, they're using water, uh, they ought to be putting some money on the table to fix some of the problems that may or may not be associated with their operations. And, and The thing is, there is some of that money around. It's CSR money, uh, but it's very limited and it's unlikely to be all that strategic. Uh, And same with philanthropy to, to, uh, I think, a similar extent, really. That that was, there was more philanthropic funding around 20 years ago for water than now they've moved on. And actually we're seeing, uh, I won't mention the funds, but some very important funds at the moment going through uh, a revision of their approach to climate, um, which is interesting and maybe worrying. Uh, the, um, The real possibility is to, I think, to, with the private sector is to find ways for them to meet their own um, uh, investment requirements at the same time as helping solve water problems. And that is what in the climate context you'd call successful adaptation. And if you look at the adaptation task uh, as, it, as countries have identified it in their nationally determined contributions that they took to Paris and they're currently revising, it's it's overwhelmingly about water. Um, that it, it, What they're concerned about is making sure that, you know, they can feed their people and do so in a prosperous way. And if you analyse those sorts of uh, modalities, you come away with, well, we've got to fix the water problem. And if you look at the portfolios of the adaptation portfolios of, uh, MDBs and particularly, say, the Green Climate Fund, which was established to uh, deal explicitly with climate problems, uh, most of their most of what they're doing on adaptation is about water. And you know, yes, there are seawalls and things that um, that aren't, but uh, but but much of what they're doing it may not be labelled water but really the fundamental problem 
is a water problem. Uh, so I think uh, in, but the astonishing thing to me still, sorry, is that in the water sector, there are a whole lot of people who never think of, never give any indication of thinking about uh, the link to climate. It's still, it baffles me why when it's so obvious. But if we can do that collectively, more uh, coherently, I think there are great opportunities. What's happening at the moment is that funding is going essentially to water issues, but it's not going, uh, it's, it's not going in a way that reflects the best broad understanding of water system questions in, uh, in um, the countries concerned. And we too often think about water uh, as a series of uh, water interventions, as a series of projects, and really it's all about system. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's an interesting paper that uh, GWP and IMI, the International Water Management Institute, have published on storage, which tries to uh, move people away from the idea that storage is just about building dams uh, and, and dealing with both the climate and the population growth challenges uh, says there's a very large storage gap globally, and, and much of this is actually not just local, but it's transboundary. Of course, transboundary in Australia has another dimension from what most people around the world think of it as. But um, the, uh, so, that, so there are some, you know, there are some system questions which really uh, uh, demand uh, attention on that basis. And I think if we could think about water more in systemic terms rather than in sort of one river basin or another um, or one intervention or another, one project or another, uh, that would be real progress. Yes, indeed. Um, Malcolm, uh, never knock a good statistic, as you've said already. Um, the World Resources Institute has found that 25% of the world's children will be living in countries facing extreme water stress by 2040. The UN has said that 263 conflicts between 2010 and 2018 were related to competition over water. Yet many Australians probably don't realise that access to water is already part of the problem in several of the world's recent conflicts, including places like Yemen, uh, the Sahel region of Africa, Palestine, India and Iraq. Why do you think there's so little discussion about water scarcity as a threat to peace and security in so many parts of the world? Um, <clears throat> I, look, I think people are reasonably aware of it, actually. I, I, there, probably there should be more discussion about it, Michael, but I, I think people are pretty aware of it, that, you know, you get headlines saying, you know, water's the new gold, which, of course, is, you know, an exaggeration, but... Um, it is, but again, it it it's something that needs to be tackled. I mean, the the, the big problem, the the you know, the, there are so many problems, but the biggest problem is, uh, I think, that in so many places you have, both in the developed and developing world, you have groundwater being extracted at an unsustainable rate, and the difficulty with that is, if you're pulling groundwater out, you know, at a rate that is hundreds of times faster than it's, it, it can be naturally replenished, 
that is a problem that's not susceptible to a easy solution. I mean, uh, you know, one of the big issues in China, for example, and I, I don't know whether Howard, you and I, uh, went through this when I was water minister, but I remember I remember going through this with George Bush, actually, George W. Bush. But one of the big problems in North China is the depletion of groundwater, that North China plain. Uh, and you know, you can do, you can, you can always, you know, desalinate. You know, at great expense, you can desalinate water to cover uh, city and industrial use. It's, it's not cheap; costs a lot of money. Uh, but for agriculture, you know, desalinated water is unless you are you know, uh, one of the Arab sheikhs, you know, who for whom energy is a zero-cost input, uh, that is, it's just simply not feasible. So, uh, you know, that and, and th these are problems that basically don't have a solution. I mean, there are, there are plenty of examples of civilizations over history which have run out of water and, and died, you know, or at least, the, you know, the people have left whether they actually died or not or just walked away is another question. Um, and uh, so, you know, that is, that's, th these, are, these are very, very big problems and some of them uh, aren't, don't have um, solutions, uh, complete solutions, but all of them, uh, you know, require you to use water much more efficiently and much more sustainably. Um, again, sharing some statistics, the UN's talked about the possibility that 700 million people will be displaced from their homes by water scarcity by 2030. And we often hear the term climate refugees. Why do you think we're not hearing more about these potential or existing water refugees? And how do you think we can address this and um at the root cause, but also what do you think is going to happen to these water refugees? Um, well, I think, um, I think Rosie, that one of the reasons we, we don't hear them uh, talk or that problem talked about under the water refugees heading is that much of it is under the climate refugees um, heading because climate change is going to be one of the main drivers of water scarcity, uh, not the only one by any means, but, but it will be uh, a main driver. So in a sense, they will be, uh, if should this happen, that would be climate refugees uh, looking for water. Uh, but, but I think, too, you know, it does go to this, this sort of visibility issue that we've been talking about throughout, that water is just not as visible any longer as it, as it used to be. Um, there's another uh, way of framing all of that too, and, and that is that these emerging problems do provide opportunities for change. And one way we could, uh, we could deal with it, particularly where there are transboundary dimensions, it's really demanded um, that we, we see we, we seek to use the emerging problems as opportunities for collaboration because if we don't do that, then they will come back and bite everybody. Uh, so um, I, I think maybe that 
intended um, optimism, um, if you like, uh, is affecting the way in which the plight of these, or the potential plight of these people is being, is being considered. Yeah. And I think I'm going to build there, Howard, on your your note of optimism and hope because uh, today's discussion has been both very frank in the urgency and the concerns around water scarcity and the links between the climate and water crisis, uh, but it's also been confronting, I think, as we talk about the challenges. Malcolm, thinking, though, and, and leaning into your reflections on the power of collective decision-making and the potential of humanity working together, what gives you most hope that we'll be able to address the water crisis? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think uh, hopefully self-interest uh, that we'll, um, you know, recognise that we can't, well, we can't live without water and we we have enough uh, sense of collective altruism that we will support societies that are, you know, that are running out or have run out of water to make sure that they have the water they need. We also have, uh, you know, the advantage of technology that, you know, previous generations didn't. I mean, desalination is one. I mean, you know, look what, look what, uh, you know, my, all of my water presentations when I was the minister used to begin typically with a picture of a Roman aqueduct uh, because I used to remind people that what collective action and planning and engineering can do, I mean, the Romans were able to deliver the city of Rome, a city of a million people, uh, a 1,000 litres of water per head per day, and that was not stored in huge dams. That was all marshalled and brought in by all of the aqueducts, and this was in an age before pumps, right? So, you know, so you've got to say to yourself, if the Romans could do that with the technology, the limited technology they had in their time, what possible excuses do we have for being short of water? You know, it, it just it requires imagination, it requires investment and, and you know, and technology and, and so forth. But it is, but, you know, but, there, but you will get, I mean, if, if you have a, an area where you have depleted your groundwater, you know, it may be that that's it. You know, that's like, it's like, I mean, this is the, I mean, you know, some, most groundwater systems do get replenished over time, but, you know, there's some systems in Australia, of course, we refer to them as paleo water, which are essentially lenses of water trapped under the earth that are not connected to any, you know, inflow. Uh, and that extracting water from them is like, well, you know, it's like finding a deposit of zinc and, you know, digging up, digging it up until it's all gone, and then you've then it's gone, and you've got to find something else. So, so I just it, it's it. I think in a sense the the most important thing is consciousness. You know, the I mean, getting back to what Ben Franklin says, we will not know the value of water until the well is dry. That's actually what the quote is, or attributed to it. And, you know, the bottom line is we've got to actually plan ahead. I mean, it's the same, it's the same point I make, you know, I used to make and took action on with respect to energy. You know, you've got to plan your energy infrastructure ahead. Um, and water is, uh, water, is no, water is no different. But, you know, the, the tendency of people to 
the minute it rains to lose interest in the issue about water scarcity. I mean, literally, the uh, it's it is it, the, the sort of the you know our our ability as humans to avoid difficult problems when to take any excuse to avoid a difficult problem is uh, is almost limitless. And unfortunately, you know, you can bluster and obfuscate and politic as much as you like, but you're not going to, that's not going to impact on the physical reality of water availability any more than it is on the physical reality of global warming. Hmm, that's right. Could I just could I just add one point um, that just really to focus on something Malcolm said earlier? I mean, he said you need a crisis, um, and and he's just made clear how that works. But you also need someone who can talk people through, persuade them that their interest lies in a certain course of action, and that's what Malcolm did back in in, in the time when he was water minister, and he managed to show people, you know, I don't think it was um, anything too grand to call it a vision. It was a vision. Uh, he managed to show people how they would win from the concessions they would make. Uh, and I think you need absolutely to do that. And by the way, it's the failure of all political parties to do that on climate change, which has left, you know, Australia where it is at the moment, I think. So, so Howard, on that point, in terms of the importance of having a narrative and being persistent in pressing a narrative to get people to change their minds, you've spent much of your career doing that, um, getting consensus around issues at the international level. So um, what is your hope that global and regional cooperation can at least do something more to mitigate the looming global water crisis? Well, I, I guess it is just a hope, um, Michael, and I think we can, we can move it along by, by active collaboration, consciously setting out to do that, um, by uh, when crises come, by utilising them uh, to focus attention, and by improving the understanding that there are resources available in the in the, the climate context that we may not have in our minds as, as a water collective uh, yet. So there, I think there are a number of quite practical um, steps we can take that can help, but I'm not sure that it's enough. In fact, I'm pretty sure it isn't enough to really um, resolve the crisis because... Um, um, back to the original problem, as Malcolm posited it, we have many more demands now. And on that note, Malcolm Turnbull, Howard Bamsey, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Goodwill Hunters podcast. And um, we look forward to the next episode in the winter season on water for development. Look out then for episode five, where Rosie and I will be talking to two highly experienced authorities on water policy. Karen Millward, a Yorta Yorta woman raised in Melbourne, who is the director of Yarra Valley Water, and Tony Slatcher, former senior public servant and special advisor on water for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade.